Enterprises want to update their technology faster. One way an enterprise can accelerate the adoption of new tools is to move more aggressively towards the cloud. By giving internal developers access to the cloud, it becomes easier to provision new servers, allowing for rapid experimentation, test environments, and scalability. In previous shows, we have explored how large enterprises successfully learn to move their technology faster. Much of this process is rooted in being able to experiment quickly, which requires well-defined testing procedures and the ability to quickly provision and destroy infrastructure. Many enterprises have large on-premise infrastructure deployments. An enterprise's movement towards the cloud can be made complex by this existing set of servers. In today's show, Aparna Sinha discusses how Kubernetes is useful for enterprises and how it can improve development speed, experimentation, and observability. Aparna is the leader of the product team for Kubernetes and Container Engine at Google. Much of her job is centered around understanding what would be useful to enterprises who are choosing a cloud provider. The open source version of Kubernetes is useful on its own, but most enterprises choose a managed provider of Kubernetes, such as Google Kubernetes Engine, to help with support and onboarding. Full disclosure, Google is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Parna Sinha, you are the Group Product Manager for Kubernetes at Google. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Glad to be here. I want to talk to you about Kubernetes in its relation to enterprises. So there are large enterprises that want to update their technology more quickly. Many enterprises that we've had on the show that have legacy technology they're in this situation where they can't iterate as quickly as they would like to. So this is a prototypical problem. I'm sure that you have encountered it in enterprises that you've talked to. What are the problems that these enterprises run into at a fundamental level when they're trying to move quickly? So Jeffrey, as you know, software is becoming more and more critical to the competitiveness of every enterprise in every industry. And so the desire to move to new technology and to iterate on their existing software set is really rooted in business outcomes and the desire to be more competitive. But as a large enterprise, there can be many obstacles to moving quickly. And they, they, they come in many forms. I guess I'll highlight three. One is, you know, if your internal IT systems and IT processes are based in the traditional way of releasing software, then they typically require quite a few approvals. Uh, they may have some manual processes where in order to uh, provision new software or develop new software, you know, you need to actually order hardware and provision virtual machines and, you know, install operating systems before, you, before your developers can even get started with rolling out applications. And that usually leads to some, you know, some delays. Uh, the other sort of day two problem is keeping the software that you have up to date and current and therefore being able to utilize, you know, the latest innovations in your field. And that's pretty critical if you want to be competitive. But enterprise software, especially when, when you have kind of a lot of process, tends to get stale. And then it's difficult to upgrade it. And then, you know, that's another reason why, you know, enterprise companies fall behind in terms of what they have in their tech stack. Those are two reasons. I think the third one really has to do with talent and capabilities. You know, these days, developers are very much at a premium, and uh, it can be difficult to hire the best developers or to hire developers that are up to date with the latest technologies. And ultimately, that determines the competitiveness of your entire enterprise and certainly of your IT capabilities. I think those are some of the basic challenges that companies run into. Then on the infrastructure side, I would say that, you know, the, the platform that you choose, the stack that you choose, and the processes that you build around it are uh, some of the fundamental decisions that determine your agility, not just in the short term, but over the long term. In order to be moving faster, a lot of the enterprises have started to move a lot of their infrastructure into the cloud. And I think initially, people were just looking at the cloud as maybe this is going to 
save us costs or reduce the operational burden we have by having to in-house our infrastructure management. But over time, there have been all of these other benefits that people have seen come with the cloud. For example, you have these really beautiful dashboards that are really well-designed that the cloud providers build for people. Uh, it makes it much easier to interface with stuff. You don't necessarily have to go through a command line. You can go through like a really nice web interface. And that makes it more pleasurable to interact with, which lowers the the barrier to engaging with this stuff and, and, uh, and spinning it up. But then over time, even the the command line tools for interfacing with uh, with cloud products have have gotten better, and then I guess I guess Kubernetes is not exactly a cloud product, but it's more like a product for managing your own internal infrastructure uh, like a cloud, or with the assumption that you always have access to infrastructure to spin up new resources on. Uh, but I think I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. So for these enterprises that want to move to the cloud in order to to accelerate their operations, what are the challenges that they run into? What are the hurdles that they have to overcome in order to to get that situation where I'm an average developer at a large enterprise, like an insurance company or a bank or some kind of uh, factory, and I'm I'm a, just an average developer and I have access to cloud products. Yeah. Well, you're you're absolutely right about the value of the cloud. And I think it has gone through certain phases. In the beginning, there was this perception that, you know, co- cloud is just about converting CapEx to OpEx, going from fixed cost for infrastructure to something that's, you know, more on demand. And that's true. Cloud is that. But I think as as users started to started to leverage the cloud, they discovered the other benefits, agility, being able to start very quickly. You know, you dream up a project and immediately you can start coding it and in a little while you can start releasing it and testing it and you know making it available to the world so that turned out to be potentially a bigger benefit you know a top line benefit versus a, a bottom line cost reduction and then I think particularly for smaller companies or newer projects that have an uncertain an unknown demand the scalability of the cloud so you don't have to ever over provision and, and yet you're not under provisioned you can actually grow uh, without you know, without overpaying and, and yet without curtailing your growth. So I would say, you know, cost reduction, agility, scalability, these were some of the early benefits that folks realized. And then I think a few years ago, there was another major shift in the adoption of the cloud when I think the world realized that the cloud can actually be more secure than on-prem infrastructure. And that really has to do with the fact that the cloud is a constantly updated, very current environment. And so, you know, Google, of course, excels at uh, security. And, you know, we saw this last year with some of the, some of the security changes that Google made uh, even before those exploits were, were announced. And, and it, it is on an ongoing basis. So, Customers have started to realize that actually the cloud can be more secure, the cloud can be more reliable. Those are some of the, I would say, properties of the cloud and properties of your IT infrastructure, of your IT stack that you look for. Uh, and now uh, customers are moving much more rapidly to the cloud because they've realized its cost, its agility, its scalability, its security, its reliability. Boy, I can get a lot of that at par or better than what I could do on premise. But, you know, I think what takes it over the top is the services that the cloud provides, the innovative services. And so, for example, you know, the machine learning capabilities, the data and analytics services that we have in Google Cloud, things like a managed Kubernetes service as well, and other types of services, you know, log service, and then build on that logs analytics service. So it's sort of like, I almost think of it like, you know, your smartphone, your, you know, your Android smartphone has all of these applications, and you can actually kind of put them together and do things that that you couldn't do if you just had the hardware. So I, I make that analogy, and it helps me see the true benefits of the cloud beyond just the fact that it's more secure, more reliable, hosted hardware. So that's what I, I would say to your first point about, you know, cloud is, is very popular and co- companies are moving to the cloud. Um, your second point was really, you know, Kubernetes as a cloud and what are some of the challenges that companies face in moving to cloud? I think Kubernetes is absolutely an enabler of cloud. It's a very, very close companion 
And the thing about Kubernetes that makes it an enabler of the cloud is it actually enables that that high utilization of the underlying infrastructure. It enables that agility where you can, you know, get started quickly uh, to build your application. You don't have to worry about, you know, starting uh, starting up a new VM or starting up a new operating system. It does have, uh, a, you know, great scalability and auto scaling capabilities. So it gives you some of those aspects of the cloud, uh, even on premises, even in an environment which isn't actually an elastic environment, right? So you can you can use Kubernetes to achieve that agility or similar agility, similar utilization and, and performance and reliability. So customers often tell me that with Kubernetes, you know, my VMs could go down and it didn't matter. My application still stayed up. So some of the things that they notice when they use Kubernetes is the increased utilization, the increased reliability, and of course, the ability to release software more frequently. So that's why Kubernetes is often referred to to as an enabler of the cloud. But the other piece of it, um, which I think is even more important, is the fact that once you are running your applications on Kubernetes, it makes it very, very easy to move to a public cloud or to move back to on-premise or to you know, move between cloud providers. And that's the fundamental portability of Kubernetes and of containers that allows you that freedom. And I think that that is unique, truly unique amongst the, the different types of platforms that you could base your applications on. So what I'm hearing you say is that there are issues with moving to the cloud because a company already has pre-existing infrastructure. And th- I think there's some hesitation to to buy into a solution that would would lead them towards it where something that they would feel like they would be locked into. But what's useful about Kubernetes is that it is this layer of optionality and that you know why there's the comparison to to Linux, which is a very apt comparison where I think enterprises are fairly comfortable, most enterprises are fairly comfortable with Linux at this point, or many enterprises, I don't know about most, but many are, are very comfortable with Linux as a optionality layer that's not going to lock them into anything specifically that they don't want to be locked into. So so could you give a little more color on on why that's appealing to enterprises, like that layer of optionality, the layer of flexibility? Yeah, so you talked about the issues with moving to the cloud. I think there are three main issues that companies encounter. Number one, you know, do I have the capabilities that I need to get to the cloud? Like, do I have the staff and the training that I need to get to the cloud? I think that's number one. Second uh, are all of the constraints that you mentioned. You know, I have on-premises hardware. Most large enterprises have on-premises hardware. But it's not just the hardware. It's actually the applications. Can the applications be moved to the cloud? Or are these applications that aren't going to be able to run in the cloud? Um, Maybe there are some constraints. You know, maybe it's the way that they're architected or the way that they're connected together. Or maybe they need to be on-premises for other reasons. And then I think number three uh, and most important is will I get the anticipated benefits? I think a lot of people sometimes, you know, they get the training, they work around the constraints, but, you know, if they, they if they haven't done it before, they may not achieve the benefits that they set out to achieve. And in some cases, they've had to turn back, you know, their, their deployment. So how do you overcome that? So number one, the training, right? If you're going to move to the cloud and the cloud environment is going to look radically different from your on-premises environment, then you pretty much have to train a new skill set and possibly a new, entirely new workforce that's going to be uh, familiar with all of the technologies that are in the cloud and uh, familiar with how to how to write applications and run applications in the cloud. And they need to talk to your internal systems and your internal security and networking and internal controls and then your internal developers. So you kind of end up fragmenting your resources, both on the operations side as well as on the development side. And the more number of clouds that you choose, you know, and I think most enterprises, I think we have some data that says 80% of enterprises are hybrid or multi-cloud, you know, because they want to use the best capabilities in each cloud. So the more clouds you use, the more this fragmentation of, uh, of training. So that's a big problem. Wouldn't it be better if you only had to train on one platform and that platform went with you to all of these different environments so you didn't have to retrain? I mean, the, the efficiencies that you get from the operations and developer productivity is, it, you know, it can be very significant. 
Secondly, you know, the constraints, the constraints are what they are, but if you can actually work on the constraints in a more gradual manner so that you can work on the constraints in your own environment, for example, so that, you know, you can, you can integrate your more modern, your more cloud native applications with your legacy applications, say in the framework of your on-premises security and networking setup, uh, before you move to the cloud, that can actually be a great way to take care of the constraints, you know, keep in the environment where, you know, your constraints are real and in production and rooted. And then uh, having addressed those with your new architecture, move that new architecture to the cloud. That can be another way of sort of handling the constraints. And ultimately, we call that improve and move. This improve and move strategy actually helps you get the, the true benefits of the clouds. So it, where Kubernetes fits into that picture is containerizing your applications, uh, writing them on Kubernetes for the things that you are developing on-premises, uh, doing that with Kubernetes on-premises. For the things that you are already developing in the cloud, doing that in, in a managed service uh, or in Kubernetes managed by you in the cloud, then you have kind of a one-for-one footprint in both places, in on-prem and in cloud. And then it makes it very easy to move that application from on-prem to cloud. And it also, you know, you've sort of figured out how to connect to whatever needs to remain on-prem and that connection can then just be carried over when you move to the cloud. That way you you don't run the risk of, you know, sort of moving your application as is and suddenly in the cloud it's actually consuming more more compute than you expected and it's not scaling the way that you expected um, and so you're not getting the benefits of the cloud. If you actually put in the work beforehand, before migrating to the cloud to make sure that actually the application is cloud ready, then you overcome these three uh, common challenges of training, of constraints, and actually getting the benefits. And Kubernetes is a, is a is a big enabler for that. A lot of these, when we talk about enterprises, enterprises have thousands of developers, and they have lots of teams of varying skill sets throughout the organization. And I'm wondering how you are seeing adoption of Kubernetes make its way through an organization. So for example, three years ago when we did a bunch of shows around companies adopting Docker, the ramp-up process would often be a small group within an enterprise would use Docker, and they would do it for something not mission critical, so something like a job board. The classic was Netflix moving their job board into Docker or moving it into the cloud. or you know, that's It's like the job board is not critical to Netflix running streaming videos. And so you often see this this proving of a use case by testing it out on on non-mission critical infrastructure. And then they say, wow, this was actually a great experience. And then they gradually ramp up the the difficulty of what they're doing. So that's one part of my question is, is sort of how they gradually ratchet up the difficulty level of what they're moving on to Kubernetes. But the other side of the question is, when you have these giant organizations and you have different teams that are not talking to each other in the organizations, you might get different people who are standing up Kubernetes clusters in different regions of the organization. Is that a problem? Do they need to eventually merge these different clusters together? Give me the lay of the land for how these really large enterprises are adopting Kubernetes and how it's making its way through organizations. Yeah, so there's a pattern for adopting new technology, and Kubernetes is not that much different from the way that you might adopt any other new technology. Typically, there tend to be, you know, early adopters or people that are at the forefront that are interested, and many of these tend to be developers. So it is a very popular technology in the DevOps and developer community, and they'll go out and they'll they'll try containers, and then they'll try Kubernetes, and you know, uh, they'll start maybe a pilot. So if you're or, you know, a smaller company, a startup, you know, then this is just something that like makes complete sense. And you just, you know, you start with it. And I've seen companies that don't have anything else. Their entire uh, portfolio is based on Kubernetes. But when you talk about the medium to large enterprises, like you said, there's thousands, sometimes tens of thousands, right? 20, 40,000 developers. And it tends to be, you know, a couple of teams, uh, you know, developers certainly are starting, you know, you will start to, to use containers before anyone else 
else in the organization. But what we also find is that there are innovation teams or platform teams. These tend to be kind of cluster admins or these are teams of admins that are charged with, hey, we're really looking for the next generation of improvements in productivity. You know, how are you improving our ability to launch? How are you improving our ability to achieve business results? And those are typically the teams that they will go out and they'll experiment with technology. And so over the last three years, we've met teams at almost every large enterprise. I can't think of any, you know, I mean, any industry, like I've seen them in every bank, every insurance company, healthcare more often uh, now, uh, and retail and gaming and media. Across all these industries, every company has, you know, this type of team that starts to look at what's our next generation platform? How can we improve the productivity and utilization and get our business to the next level? And that's where they typically bring in Kubernetes. And then what they'll do is they'll set up a Kubernetes environment. They'll, of course, test it out themselves. They'll start a few applications. And then they'll make it available to their constituents, which could be other portions of the IT organizations, or it could be just developers in a particular business unit or across business units. And um, and then those developers will start to use this. And typically, you know, it starts the way any other thing starts. You know, I'll, I'll use it for my web app, or I'll use it for my front end, or I'll use it for an e-commerce app, or maybe I'm writing something that needs a machine learning, you know, chatbot or something, or I'm, I'm, I'm doing something that's stateless. That's typically where it'll start. And then they discover that actually I can do more than that on this platform. Maybe I should try and run some batch jobs. You know, that'll actually be very efficient. Uh, it, you know, I, I'll only use what I need and it seems like a good platform. And then they'll find actually, yeah, there's a lot of documentation. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of tutorials. There's a lot of actually examples. I can do that. Well, that works. Or if they're trying out something like serverless or functions, you know, this can be a great platform for that. And then eventually that platform team will get enough demand that they start to formalize the platform. They, of course, make sure behind the scenes that they get the security and compliance and networking capabilities. If they're building a hybrid cloud, they'll build a pathway to the public cloud so that, you know, this platform can be used in the public cloud and in in the on-premise environment. And then they'll start to support more and more types of applications and you know, kind of create an internal document uh, or set of documents about how to use the platform. And then I've seen many companies that have built an entire PaaS for their internal teams that's based on Kubernetes and for them to use Kubernetes. So I, I think uh, the, the thing that's different about Kubernetes uh, relative to other technologies that I've seen is the rapid adoption of it. And I think that is rooted in the fact that you see the benefits pretty quickly. Your developers uh, see the benefits pretty quickly as an operator. You start, you see, wow, okay, this is actually, you know, really bringing benefit to my organization and I know how to manage it. And it's pretty elegant, you know, how I can extend the API. It's elegant how I can do things in Kubernetes, how I can configure things, how I can set policies, how I can provide, you know, capabilities to my developers. So I I found that a lot of these platform teams have become fans of the software. They've started contributing to the open source. They become part of the community. So they're not just customers or users. They're also, they start to become contributors or at least participants in the community. And they feel this sense of ownership. So the passion around it, uh, I think it comes from the effectiveness of the software and also just the openness of the community and, and, and of, the, of the software. So that then uh, is, a, is a virtuous cycle. It generates more usage. And then, of course, the end users find it useful. So that's how I think Kubernetes is different in that it is, it's like any other new technology, the, the, the pattern that you use to adopt it, but then it, it spreads faster. Sometimes enterprises can be hesitant to pick up a technology when there are security risks to picking up that technology. What were the challenges of security of Kubernetes that, that the platform has overcome in the last couple years? And how have you seen those security challenges impact the perspective of Kubernetes from those enterprises? Yes, absolutely. Security is an is an extremely important criteria for most enterprises. Uh, particularly, as I mentioned, you know, uh, there were some statistics I think last year from Redmonk that you know fifty four percent of the top Fortune one hundred are using Kubernetes in some form, and uh, you know there's a high percentage of financial services that are using Kubernetes. These are obviously regulated industries. These are industries that have a very high bar on compliance and also security. You know, they have a lot of customer data that. It's very, very business critical. So 
I think three years ago, there was, uh, there was much concern about using containers as a technology for security conscious enterprises. Uh, there's been a lot of progress on the technical front in, in the realm of security and container security. Container security, infrastructure security, you know, runtime security, and just security constructs in Kubernetes overall have made tremendous progress in the last three years. And, and I think that is evidenced by the fact that there are now so many of the financial institutions and so many of the regulated industries that are using Kubernetes in production, in fact. So, and I, and I wouldn't say that, it, you know, it, it is being used at a very large scale. Uh, the entire company is using Kubernetes. There are some, but um, I think it's still on the way on the way to, you know, mainstream and massive adoption in these regulated and highly security conscious industries. But it's certainly being used in production, which means that it's uh, the base capabilities are starting to be there. Some of the base capabilities, and these were mostly all introduced more than a year ago, role-based access control, you know, is uh, was stable in the 1.8 release. And for context, we're now working on the 1.12 release. We just we just finished the 1.11 release last week. So this is a while ago now that role-based access control uh, became stable, and it was available for a year or more before that. But that basically allows you to set granular controls on who can do what in your cluster. And then network policy, which is uh, an L7, oh, sorry, it's an L4 construct for uh, you know which applications or which pods can talk to each other and being able to set that at a policy level at an L4. It's a basic capability, again, I think uh, that enterprises need. Combining that with L7 policy controls, which uh, are now offered through Istio. Istio is an add-on on top of Kubernetes that provides not only service-to-service -service authentication and this type of uh, L7 security policy, but a number of other developer-facing functions like load balancing and canarying as well. Uh, but back to security network policy are back. Those are some of the building blocks. But then in every release, we've been adding more capabilities. So pod security policy and secrets encryption, which was released in 1.7. And in the last release, 1.10, uh, you know, was enhanced and I think is now beta or stable. You know, those are some of the things that enterprises expect. And, and I think that we're more than, I think, 50, 70% there in terms of security uh, capabilities of Kubernetes for, you know, the more security conscious enterprises. And then on top of that, if you work with a provider, a managed provider like Google Kubernetes Engine, security is really built in to that offering. So obviously the various types of compliance, HIPAA compliance and other types of compliance or something that the cloud provides, that GCP provides on GKE as well. But then we also provide a very locked down uh, image, uh, operating system image, which, uh, you know, is patched and upgraded regularly for uh, any CVEs that may come out. And so all of that is managed for you as a user. And then, of course, these capabilities like RBAC and that policy, Istio, pod security policy, encrypted secrets, these are some things that are, you know, part of the, the Kubernetes package and, of course, available also on GKE. So as a whole, I think it has become much more reliable, much more secure. And it, that is evidenced by the fact that you have now large financial services and of course re huge retailers with uh, you know PCI uh, and and you know customer data that that are that are comfortable and they feel that kubernetes is secure to use in production so the the typical model of using a container on kubernetes is you're sharing a kernel an operating system kernel with other containers and there are there are some fundamental security concerns that come from this shared operating system model. And so, you know, I, I'd love to hear you discuss those, but also the the sandboxed container design is is something that can potentially remedy those concerns. And this this sandboxed container design uh, allows you to to escape from this this shared infrastructure layer. So can you can you talk about the the risks or the perceived risks at least of sharing infrastructure and and how the the sandboxed container idea potentially absolves you of some of those risks yeah so there's security and then there's you know sort of hard multi-tenancy and hard security boundaries and in the case where you have say coke and pepsi you know on the same cluster you want to have really hard multi-tenancy boundaries and isolation between those uh, two types of tenants. And there are other cases where, you know, even within your 
organization, you know, maybe it's not multi-tenant, but even within your organization, you want to make sure that there is never any risk of, or, I mean, you can never say never, but, you know, there's hypervisor level isolation between workloads. You know, there, there can be, there can be more sort of vulnerable workloads that are less secure that you want to run in kind of a, a more secure environment. So, you know, for example, WordPress or some of the other workloads that are more prone to, to container breakout or to, to issues, security issues, you may want to run in a more lockdown environment. And so that's where things like sandbox containers and the ability to, to have hypervisor-grade isolation between pods and containers uh, comes in. And so that is a specification that we've been working on in Signode for several months. And I, at, at KubeCon in EMEA, we introduced GVisor, which is Google's uh, implementation for secure pods or secure containers. And that is something that's open source and is still being productized, but it is available in the open source to use for that. And it can be, like I said, there are two use cases. One is just to provide better secure isolation between workloads. And then the other is hard multi-tenancy. And I think the hard multi-tenancy is the, is the more, more severe uh, or the higher end of requirements where you really want to make sure that there's a hard boundary between, between different tenants that could be working in the same cluster. So it's an added level, added layer of security for truly security conscious and isolation conscious use cases. How does the the multi tenancy question of containers compare? Because you you worked in virtualization and distributed systems for a pretty long time. How does a multi tenancy model of containers compare to the multi tenancy model of VMs on the different axes of? Uh, noisy neighbor problems and observability and security. How does it compare to your time spent just working in, in VM contexts? Yeah, I think the multi-tenancy model of uh, containers is mind-blowing. It is extremely exciting. From a distributed systems point of view, you know, you almost get the best of both worlds, right? With containers, you get that tight utilization, that high utilization, the, you know, the bin packing that you want uh, as, a, as a multi-tenant provider, right? Because as a multi-tenant provider, you have your infrastructure and you want to bring in as many tenants and use it as efficiently so you can pass on the savings to your to your tenants as the system will allow and and containers uh, and in particular the way that Kubernetes schedules and manages containers is exceptional and that's what our internal Google infrastructure is based on it uses containers under the hood to run things like search and Gmail and maps all on the same infrastructure uh, at, at, a, at a scale that requires us to be extremely cost efficient right and so that technology is what's also, you know, at the heart of what Kubernetes does. So I think putting that into the hands of, um, you know, SaaS providers or, you know, users that are providing multi-tenant applications is extremely powerful. I'm very, very excited about that. I think that it is a step above, you know, what VMs can do in terms of utilization and, and, and also elasticity and flexibility. But then there's, there's usually a trade-off, you know, for that versus, uh, security and isolation and how much security and isolation can I get if I'm actually doing this bin packing? And that's where the sandbox containers concept comes in. So on that spectrum, on that trade-off, you know, the sandbox containers construct takes you towards much more isolation, much more similar to what you would get with a hypervisor. So uh, I think it's extremely exciting because it gives you sort of the best of both worlds. You can run now much more efficiently and so I think it's a big enabler for software as a service. It's a big enabler for, you know, any customer to sort of take their application and say, hey, I'm going to offer this as a service to others and others can, can run, multiple tenants can run on my application and I'll be able to keep them isolated and secure. I'll be able to bill for them individually. I'll be able to, you know, recognize those tenants and provide services to the tenants individually and yet do so at a very cost-effective scale for me as a provider. It's a great enabler for that, I think, in a way that that is a step above what VMs can be. And that sandbox that the, the sandbox container is running in, so I'm assuming it, it, it has some kind of engineering, some sort of fundamental restriction that prevents the application from breaking out and accessing resources that are on the same the same 
hypervisor, I guess, or on, or I guess on the same kernel is what I should what I should be saying, right? Do you, do you, do you know more about the implementation of the sandbox or what that actually means? What those hard security boundaries are? Well, I mean, the security boundaries come from looking at syscalls and filtering syscalls, and so the implementation of the sandbox container gvisor in this case, you know, is filtering syscalls. And, you know, it, that that is fundamentally the mechanism uh, that's used here. And there are other filtering mechanisms like SE Linux and AppArmor that are more static filtering mechanisms. So it's not that they don't exist, they do exist. And then the hypervisor is sort of kind of a, a more heavyweight mechanism. But uh, there are there are other mechanisms like SE Linux in Linux itself that you can use, but they're more static and you kind of have to know what you're looking for and set the policies beforehand, but you might not know what kind of vulnerabilities there are. And so they're more risky and, and they have to be, they're more manual. But with Gvisor, it's uh, something that's more automated. It's something that we've used internally and there's a lot of you know engineering that's gone into it from Google over the years. So we, we've been using it for quite some time. I, yeah, I probably need to do a whole show on that topic. It's Yes, um, I think that might be useful. And you know, to what you said about the economies of scale, you know, some of the I did some some early early shows on Docker where I would ask people about like what eco- how big are the economies of scale that people are getting when they go from just a VM based infrastructure or bare metal infrastructure to uh, containers and nobody really had like hard numbers at that point because I think it was a little bit early but at this point I've done a couple shows where people have really benchmarked their spend and how much like how much they're saving. Uh, and there's particularly a case study that I heard about on the Women in Tech show about W, I think WP Engine, where they saved something like 50% of their costs, which is just insane. Like saving 50% of your infrastructure costs by migrating your infrastructure layer is just, I mean, that's going to improve your margins a lot for I mean it, it's 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 like it's it seems like something that can really change the economics of of just uh, software businesses as a whole but anyway I don't I don't need to tell you that yeah. um <laughs> no, it's not at all surprising to me. That's not at all surprising. Of course, I've seen the WP Engine numbers and I've worked with them and so forth. But, you know, I've had customers, it's, it totally depends on your architecture and how much work you put into the re-architecture. If you're doing a re-architecture, you know, how much benefit you get. But I've had customers that have said, you know, they went from 4% utilization to 90% utilization. We, that's the one that's like shocking to me. Like, wow, wow that's uh, incredible, right? Like, how did that happen? But, you know, usually in going from VMs to Kubernetes in the cloud, you are going to see something on the order of 30 to 50%. Like, you know, you don't have to do something extraordinary to get that, you know, in terms of benefit. But I, I've seen more, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, it's typical. So th- that utilization and that efficiency, sometimes you take out, you know, whole load balancers, obviously, the utilization of the of the machines, the virtual machines goes up, you're, you're auto scaling, so you're not and your auto scaling is actually working. So you're not using capacity that you that you were before. So it's it's the combination of the bin packing plus the auto scaling plus the the architecture itself requires less. So that's where you get the, you know, 30 to 50% and in some cases 90%, you know, depending on uh, what your application was. Like if you're using say preemptible VMs on Google Cloud and you're running batch processes that you could get 90% kind of benefit versus running them on VMs on-prem or somewhere else where you don't have preemptible. So that there's a range. But the 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 cool thing is that it's not just a utilization benefit, right? My customers tell me, yeah, I was really surprised, very pleasantly surprised, and very happy with my cost reduction. But um, I also saw that my application was more reliable, that the underlying VMs could go down and it wouldn't matter. My application would stay up. And that was really pleasant, right? You can imagine that 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 was something that is just a very, very positive experience for users. So I've, I've heard that a lot. And people People say, yeah, my reliability went up. I don't, I don't have to get up in the middle of the night and fix things. And I love that. And then, of course, you know, sort of lastly, I guess, <laughs> is, the, is the developer productivity. And now I'm releasing so many more times a day, which, you know, often that's the first thing I think of. But in terms of the experience of the user, yeah, they see the utilization, they see the reliability, and they see the productivity benefit. And then, and then of course, they also like the fact that it's portable. So as, as far as the faster release times, we have done a lot of shows about continuous deployment. We have some more that are coming up. 
and I, I wanted to ask you a, about that, but there's an, another burning question I, I had, so maybe we can get to continuous deployment a little bit later, but the the question around the data platform, so you know, you and I can be very excited about machine learning and should we use Spark or should we use Dataflow or you know, how should we get our machine learning jobs deployed? And that stuff is very exciting and very interesting. But at these enterprises, there's a ton of low-hanging fruit in, let's just get like Hadoop clusters running. Let's just get batch MapReduce jobs going across our data. And I think, you know, the the Hadoop providers that came out in uh, in the earlier 2000s, like the the MapRs and the Clouderas of the world, and and uh, you know of course the the other cloud providers were were very helpful in in modernizing some inter- enterprises and bringing MapReduce and you know straightforward data platforming into these enterprises, but there are still like challenges at least i get the sense there are challenges at the data platform layer that can be improved by kubernetes so when you're talking about the data platform what are the ways that that kubernetes can help some of these enterprises like a, a big insurance company develop its data platform well there's a couple of ways i i would say what is sort of being done today is you sort of have your Kubernetes environment. It could be in GKE, it could be on-prem, and you may be integrating it with a, uh, with an existing data warehouse or an existing Hadoop cluster, right? That's sort of the, I think, the traditional way, you know, you're doing some batch processing in Kubernetes, and then you're doing some ETL, say, on-prem with your data warehouse or with, with uh, you know, with your Hadoop cluster, and that's happening at some frequency that makes sense for your business. That's kind of, you know, not using Kubernetes as a data the data platform or, or only using it as a part of your data platform. The other is, is to run stateful services on Kubernetes. And we have invested uh, about two years to build up the capabilities. So originally, I think when you th- think about containers, they weren't really thought of as, uh, and they weren't uh, capable of running stateful applications. That's uh, sort of more of a recent development, I think, over the last two years where we've invested quite a bit of time in running stateful applications on Kubernetes. And so the basics are there, the primitives are there. So you're not just running, you know, web services, you can run batch, you know, you can run machine learning, and you can run stateful uh, services like Redis or Elasticsearch or MongoDB or MySQL or, you know, a whole host of sort of database-like or data store-like services, Zookeeper, Kafka, obviously, etcd. So you can run these things on Kubernetes. And then when you run them on Kubernetes, they obviously have all of the benefits of the efficient infrastructure, the auto-scaling, and the reliability piece. But they're architected differently than stateless applications. And so providing the primitives to run these types of stateful services on Kubernetes is what we worked on over the last year or two years. Uh, providing the primitives. So the primitives, you know, in, in terms of stateful sets and init containers and, you know, the jobs capability and the batch API, those primitives are stable, actually. They're, you know, we've matured them over the course of the last uh, two years. And now what we're doing is we're encapsulating a lot of that capability into what are called operators or application operators. And application operators sort of automate the deployment of stateful applications in your cluster. Uh, and they extend the Kubernetes API to provide you an API endpoint that understands, that speaks the language of that application. And in, with further development, we're actually building application lifecycle capabilities into the operator. So the operator will actually upgrade and do maintenance of your application. These are and we've picked certain applications to begin with. So like you mentioned, Spark and uh, I think also TensorFlow and Airflow and Redis. And so, so, and it's based on sort of what's a good fit for Kubernetes plus what is there, you know, sort of immediate demand for. And Hadoop isn't yet, you know, it isn't a good fit for Kubernetes. So I think that hasn't, that is sort of at the level where we're integrating with it, but not really running it. Spark is and has been a very good fit. And so we have native support for Spark. Uh, and Kubernetes is a native spe- scheduler for Spark. And then cluster databases obviously are a natural fit or cl- cluster data stores are a natural fit for Kubernetes. But uh, then also things like MySQL, you know, CockroachDB and things that are, and MariaDB and kind of more traditional kind of databases as well. And then, of course, Redis and Elasticsearch. These are things that people tend to use very commonly 
with what they're building on Kubernetes. I think over time we may uh, find that Kubernetes expands to be a more universal platform. That's certainly, you know, it's, it's come a long way already. It, it may expand in other ways to be a more universal platform. There's still more engineering, I think, to be done. How has your role changed as the Kubernetes project has scaled? My role, well, I lead product uh, for Kubernetes, and it has been an extremely exciting ride, I would say. I've enjoyed very much uh, bringing this project and this product up and being there in the early days and bringing it up to kind of a more mature project where there are, there's getting to be widespread usage. My role, I would say, and my team's role has shifted from guiding the initial technology, working very closely with engineering to bring some of the innovation to market and explaining the innovation and changing mindsets, evangelizing and kind of uh, describing the benefits of containerization, the benefits of this platform, you know, the everything we talked about here with regard to utilization and agility and portability. These were things that weren't obvious. People were very rooted in VMs. And, you know, two years ago, these things weren't very obvious. And so we worked on a lot of demos and use cases and tutorials to teach users about this um, and also to learn about user environments to see how this technology could fit in. But I think in the last year, year and a half, that has shifted to actually users know and they come to us and they tell us, you know, hey, I got high utilization. I'm being very productive. And (laughs) we're like, okay, that's great. Um, And what we're working on is, okay, how do we understand the enterprise requirements? How do we understand all of the security capabilities and build those security capabilities and going back and working with our engineering team to really prioritize and really understand the enterprise environment? in which Kubernetes is used. Uh, What are the other things that Kubernetes is used for? What are the network constraints? What are the storage constraints? What are the traditional sort of hardware and and legacy software that is is needs to interface with? What are the things that we need to build to make it simpler for a new class of developers or or maybe data scientists that are going to be using Kubernetes? How do we make it simpler for them to use? So both at the, towards the lower end of the stack as well as at the top end of the stack, we've been innovating as a product team to get that understanding of the customer and build that roadmap for the product for Kubernetes and, and especially for GKE to start to move you know, into mainstream production, regulated, highly secure uh, enterprise environments, oftentimes in on-premise use cases or in use cases that span enterprise and cloud. You know, and, and making it easier to use for a wider class of developers. So those are the, the ways in which my job has changed. And, uh, you know, I come from an enterprise software background, so I've naturally gravitated towards, you know, making this uh, software work for large enterprises, providing a higher SLA, increasing the security and reliability, you know, getting it into on-premise environments and making sure that hybrid works well. But then we've also been innovating on the, on the developer efficiency and the developer ease of use side of GK and Kubernetes in general. Now, to some degree, Kubernetes is, you know, you could just let Kubernetes take take the wheel from you and uh, and drive the pace at which you're working. And, you know, it's got, the project has so much momentum and so many different people working on it that it's, it's probably taking on a life of its own to some degree. But I know that at Google, there is a high value placed on objectives and key results and key performance indicators so that you have this framework of measurement that can keep you sane when things are getting really crazy and also if if things feel like they're losing momentum then these these numerical principles can help you find what to focus on so in in light of that what are the OKRs and the KPIs for Kubernetes this year you know, I don't think that, especially in a space that's moving as quickly as cloud and, you know, cloud native technologies, I don't think you can you can let, I don't know, the pace of the project drive where you're going in the future. That's a recipe for disaster. I think that as a product owner and a product lead, you have to have a vision for the future and you have to be driving towards where you think the technology can go. I think we're very fortunate in Google Cloud in that we have a 15 plus year history with containers and with container orchestration. So we've used it and we've seen a lot of it. Um, And I'm very fortunate to work with an engineering team that originally worked on Borg. So that's the kind of environment that's just, you can't replicate. You can't, 
like, you know, you can't dream it up. It just sort of happened. (laughs) And we're very fortunate to have that. So that makes it a little bit easier to know, at least from a technical side, where things are going to go. But, you know, in terms of objectives and key results, I think it's very much about gaining traction in new areas where, and it has been that way since the beginning, even in the first years when I started working on Kubernetes, it was about well, what is the segment and what is the use case that we think is the next use case that you know Kubernetes should grow and evolve to fill? And it's still the case. We're always looking at the next. And so uh, at this point, as I mentioned, enterprise and then developer experience, uh, making it, you know, as you become a mass mass adopted technology or a technology that's adopted by the masses, you have to have a way for people to learn it and use it that's intuitive, where they're not having to gain a level of expertise. They can actually just come and use the platform and do the thing that they came there to do without having to learn a lot of the nuances. So that's where a lot of our focus has been now, uh, you know, that we have kind of an underlying technology that's flexible that can be used for multiple types of applications. How do we make it easy for developers to use it? And so building CICD capabilities, uh, providing a service abstraction layer where, you know, there's a catalog of services that developers can choose from and easily integrate into their applications, and then automating all of the rest of the underlying infrastructure and underlying capabilities of Kubernetes. So automating the provisioning, automating the scaling, automating the, you know, scaling down and then providing all of the auxiliary services like monitoring and logging and, you know, auditing and compliance, providing all of that as a package. So the developer is productive and can focus on what they need and they can easily get to what they need. And those are uh, those are the type of things that that are on the OKRs that are on the you know next phase, and then of course expanding the footprint into enterprise and into hybrid, making sure that not just one cluster, but that you can manage multiple clusters and you can manage them across environments, and you can run different types of applications and you can run them in a secure way with multi-tenancy. So some of the things that we talked about earlier in this talk, those are new directions, and I'm very optimistic because we have uh, a team that's uh, extremely passionate. We have a community that is extremely passionate, a number of partners that we work with, you know, that are, that are world-class. And so it's extremely important to me as a, as a product lead to set the right vision and to have a good compass uh, for this, for this team to work, work towards. Aparna Sinha, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really great talking to you. Thank you. Wow. 